Welcome everybody, um, I'm Mark Rubeau and I'm delighted to be here this afternoon, or this morning I think I should say, with Robert Mann, uh, an old friend and someone whose work I've admired for many, many years. Uh, Robert is currently Emeritus Professor of Politics and Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at La Trobe University. He also writes a blog for The Monthly, uh, is the author of many, many books on our society, really, basically, and how it works and why, how it could work better. Um, but today we're here to talk about Robert's new collection of essays called On Borrowed Time, uh, which we published in March. Uh, by the time you hear it, it's probably on the shelves, and I highly recommend you have a look at it. It's got ranges across a whole lot of topics uh, that have interested Robert over the time. Um, climate change, Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch and his influence on Australian politics, uh, asylum seekers, Australian history, and the United States... Islamic State, which was the subject of a book Robert published a few years ago, and uh, a place where he spent a lot of time, the university. Uh, so there's something for everyone in this book. But first, um, I'd like to talk about the first essay, which is also the title of the book, On Borrowed Time. It's a very special essay and very personal. Uh, it's describing your illness, your recent illness, which listeners may not know, um, but Robert, perhaps you can tell us bit about it. And it also explains Robert's voice is very quiet, and he can tell you that too. Yeah, I mean, it's quiet because um, the larynx has been removed. I mean, in essence, um, quite a few years ago, I had a, a cancer on a vocal cord, and um, eight years later, uh, throat cancer uh, recurred. So in late 2016, it wasn't an easy decision to make, but you know, the surgeons were absolutely clear that if I wanted to live, and I did, they would have to remove the larynx and um, get me to speak in this odd way, which I now do. Although you did say, I remember in the in the book, you say um, when the surgeon told you uh, that you'd have to have your larynx out, you said your immediate reaction was, "I'd rather die." Yeah, I mean, it was the oncologist who phoned me. Right. must have been a, I suppose for us, many of us haven't experienced such a traumatic sort of invasion on our belly, and, and to have your larynx, a part of you, removed, uh, that must have been a, a very traumatic experience. Yeah, I mean, it's strange. Um, I didn't feel traumatised. I mean, I knew how badly I was. You, you were saying to me earlier that um, there was only one time, brief time, when you actually felt depressed about it. Um, so that was part of the process to... Well, it was a very specific thing. Um, I had a second operation because um, infection spread after the first and um, the plastic surgeon realised it was a 10 or 12 hour operation. As I was being wheeled to the intensive care unit, um, I was coming out of the anaesthetic and it was in this nether world between reality and dream and things were flashing through me and uh, I found it 
that was really very destabilizing. And when I came out of that, I, because I couldn't speak, I, I was writing to Anne. And I wrote the only really despairing um, bit of conversation that I did for the whole you know, six or eight weeks without a voice. But I got over it. I mean, I, what happened was um, the man who was in charge of the ICU unit asked me if I wanted to see uh, or talk to or write to a um, you know, psychologist, psychiatrist. And I said, oh, why not? Um, like Karl Marx, everything interests me. <laughs> and I realised at that point, you know, I was back in life. Because you were once again engaged. Engaged. Yeah. And um, so it was, that was the only time I was mm. low. And you write um, very lovingly about the support that Anne gave you. Um, you almost imply that without her, things would have been quite different, could have been quite different. Absolutely. Um, I mean, Anne is a writer, um, and some people listening to this will have read some of her work, feels things very deeply, um, and was obviously terribly frightened of what might happen. But she made a sort of, um, what I call a moral decision, through moral effort, to retain cheerfulness and optimism, and to, you know, to not let me know of her fears. And, uh, you know, we were incredibly close. You know, she was there most of the time, but even when she wasn't there, going back to look after our place and our animals, she was always with me in spirit. Um, and her, her decision not to express the despair or the fear was very, very important to me. Mm, it's very, very moving. And the other th thing you talk about was you'd... Um, your experience of hospitals changed. Uh, you'd, yeah. You sort of didn't like them at all, but... Um. No, I mean, I, um, my mother was very ill um, when I was a teenager, adolescent, with multiple sclerosis, so she was often in hospital. And, um, you know, I feared it, and, uh, hospitals, and I feared the smell, and I would scurry along, you know, trying to get out of there as soon as I could. And on this occasion, you know, I was there for a long time and I had to walk two laps of the ward for physical fitness. And I really was like a sort of um, sudden flash. And I just saw the, strange to say, almost the beauty of these places. Uh, you know, what I call in the essay, cathedrals to the human spirit or humanist spirit. And, um, and you know, so all of that um, fear taste fell away and uh, you know, I, I, I could see what an incredible accomplishment in culture these places were when they're at their best Australia I think is very good at them and you talk about the the kindness of strangers that these these people by and large look after and care lovingly for people they don't yeah, know it's true and um, <clears throat> again it's in the essay it's a kind of complicated story, but I was walking with a, a speech therapist, a woman who was quite pregnant, you know, heavily pregnant. And um, in one of the many indignities I couldn't control, I coughed or uh, sneezed, you know. This, the distinction is out to make in my condition. And a glob of faintly you know, phlegm landed on the linoleum. And there was something about the, um, you know, she bent down. And she was, you know, cheerful and uh, gracious. You know, and here was a stranger treating me with such delicacy. Mm. And that, that was my experience in general, of the kindness of strangers. I luckily haven't ex had to experience that yet, but uh, I have come across people who have been ill and I'm amazed the care and tenderness that often the staff... Yeah. I'm in here again. You know, the nurses were the main contact, although the surgeons were great as well, and the physicians. There were a lot of people, um, but the nurses were the um, main thing. And I had a kind of prejudice in favour of female nurses. All right. Um, and um, any other first male nurse slightly um, made that um, suspicion uh, stronger. But the second, who 
was a nursing aide was absolutely lovely. So even my prejudice had to fall away. <laughs> Nurses of both genders and were, in my experience, uh, tremendous people. And um, so when you, after you had the laryngectomy, uh, you had to learn to speak again. Is that, is that yeah. hard? Well, you know, the amazing thing is, um, I think maybe 15 years ago, uh, they've worked out how to put in a tiny little um, silicon prosthesis connecting the uh, you know, new throat to the um, stoma, the hole. You know, it's complicated, but yeah. you can speak because of that. I'm speaking because of it now. So it's an artificial larynx in a way. It's not a larynx. No. Well, yeah, maybe. Well, right. You can call it that. Anyhow, um, sometimes people can't speak. And sometimes it takes them months, I think. Anyway, I had this extraordinary experience uh, when I was, after, you know, everything was over, we went back to begin the speech therapy. And, uh, you know, I started talking, you know, ah, count to four, count to ten or whatever. I could do it all. Straight away? Straight away. I had this story I wanted to tell the surgeons about a woman in my condition I'd seen on television on um, Australian Story the ABC that she had decided against this operation and she was dying so I had this almost um, ferocious desire to tell the surgeons that I'd seen it and that I was um, so grateful that they talked us around to the operation so I had this desire to speak, and I spoke. I spoke in paragraphs. They said, you know, they'd almost never seen anyone speak so uh, freely after the, um, the loss of voice. So I was speaking then, really, as well or as badly as I'm speaking now. And that was quite astonishing to them and to me. And so you, that was it? You could speak? After. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I... I I've, People who know me, like you do, will know that my intonation is much the same as it always yes. was. It's just that I'm reduced to a whisper. Yeah. And occasionally something goes wrong, and uh, then I have to clear myself out. But in general, mm. yeah, I think it's fantastic uh, yeah. bit of medical science that I can speak at all. It is amazing. And in your book, you mentioned another patient who was teaching him to self st- to sing again. <laughs> um, did that cross your mind? No, I mean, um, I love singing, but um, when I was, I used to sing with my daughters in the car, and uh, they took me out of it, so, <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to try and sing. Right. But, uh, you know, the main thing is to be able to communicate, and, and I can do that. And the other thing, Mark, is to overcome social embarrassment. Mm. At first it was hard to go into a local shop, particularly if the people knew me and would get a shock with my new condition. But again, you have to summon up, sort of, you know, overcome indignity. And once once I've overcome it, I'm now free of it altogether. That's a really interesting point because many people go through procedures or processes where they do change dramatically and, and confronting... People they know or um, know casually must be very difficult. That's to right. Yeah. And I did find that difficult, mm. and I wondered how I'd go. Yeah. And I had to force myself to do various things. And um, do any reactions from people put you off? Or extremely rarely. Right. I mean, I won't say, but I recently um, mm. I rang up and uh, wanted to talk to someone in a serious bit of research. Mm. Uh, area, and someone there was rather rude to me on the, the, the telephonist, but that struck me as very unusual, and most, I mean the sympathy of most people, uh. is um, immediate. Um, so, as I say, this is the title essay of your book, what, um, what moved you to, as we said before, you haven't often written about yourself in a personal way, um, what made you write it and include it? I'm not sure. I mean, um, 
it's, I think, an experience of great interest to most people. Um, and I think, you know, it's, I'm surprised, but uh, people in my condition normally become rather secretive mm. and in some kind of uh, non-moral way ashamed of the you know, condition of their body. And given that I didn't feel that, I, I thought that writing about it with an openness might actually do a bit of good in that it might encourage others to try and overcome that very natural shame, shame mm. of, you know, the depleted or less than perfect stage that their body had come to. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed it because because of that, that it was fascinating. The science and the medical technology was fascinating. And you don't pull any punches, you know, talk about you have to clean the little thing that you've got. Yeah. <laughs> and you describe that in quite <laughs> gruesome detail. <laughs> and um, you also speak of it when you, after the first operation, you couldn't look yourself in the mirror because of... You, yeah, you um, looked so terrible. You looked so terrible. Uh, but it did, um, as you say, it, it made me feel sort of as though I wanted to see you and talk to you. <laughs> um, and I'm so pleased that we're getting this opportunity I'm pleased that that was how you responded. Mm. I don't think, I mean, maybe some people are put off by the, the openness, but I don't think so. I think most people see that um, it's it's preferable to shame or to secrecy mm. or whatever. I guess people are often, they don't know how to react is probably, they're more embarrassed and not sure how. And, yeah. and I guess what's this essay is saying, well, no, it's something that happened to me. I can't deny it. Uh, so just, I've accepted it. You should accept it as well. You know, I think um, when I meet people uh, who I haven't seen um, since, you know, it was yeah. a bit over a year ago, uh, I try and joke. Uh, right. I want them to feel, which is true, that I'm not in a terrible state. Right. And I don't need or want pity. I don't have, I don't want it. I don't. And I'm not really, I'm not really piteous. So occasionally if people have expressed um, pity, um, I get a little bit irritated. Right. <laughs> uh, I want to be, you know, taken um, for what I am and uh, accepting that I'm not pretending that my spirit has um, yeah. not been destroyed because it hasn't been. That's wonderful news. <laughs> uh, I suppose we should get on to the rest of the book, which is pretty... <laughs> A pretty impressive collection. Um, would you say, I guess, how did you choose the topics that you've written about a lot of things? These, presumably, these are the things that interest you most? Or? Yeah, I mean, um, I've had a sort of slightly odd academic life, which is kind of, you know, I've retired from teaching, but it still goes on in that I've... I always wanted to talk about the things that seemed to me at that time to be shaping um, Australia, but also the wider world. And, you know, quite a bit of the book is concerned with um, climate change. And it's because I feel um, that it's overwhelmingly um, the most important um, topic of our generation. You know, like in the 1930s, the rise of fascism was... And so what was happening in the Birmingham City Council didn't, you know, doesn't anymore seem to matter. Mm. Um, but uh, so I think, you know, I just, it's really more that the, the subjects grip me. I also spent a year um, working on the ideology of the Islamic State. And that, you know, goes back to my interest in ideology and it's what, it, what the harm it does. You know, so I, when I was younger, I read a great deal about Nazism and about communism. But now, you know, so when a new ideology came on the, the block, was I was naturally right. interested. Yeah. And I think it's, um, it's one of the great problems of the contemporary world. Not nearly as important as climate change, but nevertheless very important. And so, just going on back to climate change, why, why do you think... Um, the denialists, in the face of reason and overwhelming scientific evidence, have been able to, or at least in America, hijack 
the debate. Um, yeah. I mean, Mark, if you told me um, 20 years ago that conservatives would turn against science, I just wouldn't have believed you. I mean, in a way, if the left was skeptical of science um, in a sort of postmodern way, I'd be less, I would have been less surprised. But conservatives who back the Enlightenment and who back science. So why is your question? It's a very you know, hard question. And it's got a few answers. One is that the vested interests, you know, several of the most important corporations in the world deal in fossil fuels. And they definitely um, created, you know, did everything they could, you know, in the 90s to build up this movement. But I think, um, you know, we really face fantastically complex change in our economy. And I, in my view, people in the States, Europe, Japan, Australia, and so on, um, are about as comfortable a civilization as humans have ever experienced, at least materially. Mm. And that people don't want to shift because changing energy sources, which everyone knows can be done, but is very, very difficult. And the, to give away that comfort is, you know, most of us you know, would find hard. So um, part of the reason is organization. Part of the reason, which you'll understand as a publisher, is um, these wretched culture wars that we fight. And um, fighting a culture war, I never thought we'd fight it over science, but it's been assimilated to feminism or to um, indigenous matters or um, you know gay rights and so on. It's become part of the fabric of this incessant culture war between left and right. And that, that's been the genius of the vested interests to have allowed it to become assimilated to just another item of the culture war. Today, Andrew Bolt, mm. It does seem amazing that it, they could have taken over that debate so resounding. Although, do you see any hope for um, uh, what ha ha was happening in South Australia with the, the Tesla battery farm? Uh, that seems to be capturing people's imagination. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, uh, you know, this now very slowly, you know, this vast ship of state is turning very slowly. The trouble is um, that we can't afford to be slow. Mm. If I read a lot about what scientists say, I have no you know, opinion about science of my own, but I can comprehend what they say. And, you know, if we don't act quickly, then it's almost hard to believe that, you know, our civilization will be imperiled. A thousand parts of the world will um, be underwater. The, um, you know, the water that's needed in the uh, India will not be available. You know, I just saw last night on television that Cape Town is now out of water. Yes. So this uh, real disaster, which will afflict uh, particularly poorer society, societies will happen without really strong action. And we, it's not like most political questions. <laughs> It um, can't be postponed. If you care about gay rights, it, you know, it's terrible if they're not given, but they can be a generation later. Go on yes. fighting. But you could, climate change is different because it's, it's pressing now, and the physics of it or whatever are determinative. Um, and, you know, so politics and society have to act unusually. And I suppose the the United, by the United States of the Paris Accord and appointments like Scott Pruitt to the EPA, they don't all go well for... No. I mean, the great victory, I call it dark victory, and it's one of the first essays, um, is that the Republican Party uh, has shifted. And I, it's sort of in the essay, there's a prophecy that someone like Trump will eventually arise. 
and uh, the most important figure in the world, politically speaking. To be a denialist is a profound, alarming uh, tragedy, which um, you know, I used to be very fond of Julian Assange, but no, not anymore because his facilitation of Trump's victory is, uh, for me anyhow, mm. unforgivable. Mainly because of climate change, although there are many other things yes. as well. And so you're not optimistic that we'll be able to affect change, or...? I, I think change is coming, but it's too slow. Right. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm friendly with um, the Australian head of Greenpeace, David Ritter. And, say, five years ago, we were talking about the fact that coal is not being discussed, which is Australia's contribution, really, to climate change. But in five years, that shifted. Coal is now a discussable topic, so this, there is a positive trajectory. But um, quick enough, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I, mean, I think many people listening to this will agree. To me, it's just astonishing, although easy to explain, that our Prime Minister, who once had the same views as I have, the same understanding, now is um, a supporter of fossil fuel industries. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Well, you, if you, there's one essay on Malcolm Turnbull. Maybe we should go on to that. I mean, he, he was also a great supporter of the Republic, and uh, I think when... His comment when um, the referendum on the Republic was uh, lost, he said the, the, today the nation's heart was broken. Uh, And you've got an interesting theory about Turnbull. Uh, I began to wonder about how much he cared about the Republic when he sort of lost interest in it after the nation's heart was broken. Um, And then I just realised that there's only one cause which Turnbull is a barrister, really, a barrister in politics. The cause he defends um, is himself. And it's the only cause I think he truly believes in, um, which is a bit frightening and unpleasant to say it. You know, he's undoubtedly, if, if things go, you know, he's basically a left liberal, but also an you know, economic rationalist or you know, liberal. So if you can get away with um, gay marriage, he'll do it. He'd prefer that. But if that was politically difficult, he'd turn his back on it. He just, in my view, lacks that deeper sense of principle which someone like Paul Keating possessed, and maybe even John Howard in a way possessed, for the things they believed in and they would stick to them. Yes, I think you, you sort of described Turnbull as the barrister, but just taking on, he's taking on a brief and doesn't, he'll argue it as passionately as a barrister would yeah. in front of a court, but then once it's over, or he's, else. if he's won it or lost it, he moves on to something moves on. that I mean, will he, further his career. That's right. He'd prefer to be a barrister for gay rights than against them. But if the, if, if against comes up, well, he'll, the, he'll do it. If the fee is higher, <laughs> I yeah. keeping staying Prime Minister, then you'll take take that that brief. Again, if I reproduce in that little essay some of the things he said Mm. a few years ago, and if you told me then that he would be a Prime Minister who would be strongly supporting the coal industry and mocking the ideologues of the Labour Party for caring about climate change in the way they do, I wouldn't have believed it. Mm. Inconceivable. There's something in me rather naive in that I underestimate these possibilities in people. And I mean, many people in the cent- to the centre or centre left had great hopes of when Turnbull overtook um, Abbott. They thought well, maybe we would get a sort of more rational uh, humanist yeah, leadership. And, and sophisticated. And sophisticated and willing to talk, you know, with mm. nuance. Mm. To assuming a reasonably intelligent uh, electorate all down the gurgler. <laughs> mm. um, you know, we're recording this at the time. Um, you know, he's now standing up, you know, for bourgeois 
fingers. <laughs> I don't mind that. I mean, I believe in marriage too and so on. Fidelity. But nevertheless, it's a bit strange for him to be taking on that role. Yes, because you don't think of him in that. You think of him more as a, a social um, liberal than a yeah. conservative. And, you know, in his career, he's often Always. been, um, you know, he was the one parliamentarian who backed Hanson during the mm. attempt to censor, you know, his photographs of pubescent young women or girls. Turnbull was the only one, I think, who stood up for Hanson in yes. support of art. Would he do that today? <laughs> no way, Jose. Uh, it's it's very sad. Um, that goes on to another passion of yours is refugees and asylum seekers. And um, you talk about what you call in one of your essays Howard's Curse. That, um, I mean, um, everyone was quite um, astonished with Tampa. You younger listeners may not remember all of this, but um, Howard made a decision before um, an election he would um, stop a boat from uh, bringing refugees to Australia and the decision then to force them offshore and so on and so forth. and also that if have the slightest difference with labour he would use it and it's been used election after election after election to put labour on the back foot so that's how it's goes but I also talk about Rudd's curse. And Rudd's curse was to say about these people who are now marooned on Nauru or Manus Island, Rudd's curse was to say they will never come to Australia. The question is if they're refugees and if no other country can be found, um, what, what happens to them? And you know, we're now living, we've been living for several years, allowing people to be destroyed in spirit and in body for no reason, in my view. I mean, I, my position is not that of, say, Julian Burnside, mm. in that I think, I don't think it's good, but I think we can accept using the Navy to um, as a deterrent. Anyhow, there's no, you know, there's no way we'll return to the situation where you know, quite a lot of tens of thousands arrived well, that's, that's what the conservatives argue that um, during the Gillard and the first Rudd and Gillard government, uh, a thousand people died coming to Australia, and if that's true. and it's only their um, tough measures that have stopped this um, these terrible deaths. Uh, what do you say to them? I say, I say that that's true, and um, there's no way Canberra will go back to the Rudd and Gillard period with tens of thousands. Arrived and arrival accelerated. Yeah, with Gillard, there were every day boats were arriving. I don't, it's inconceivable that what I call Canberra will return to that. But the thing that is not needed is this policy towards those marooned on Nauru and Manus Island. If you have a navy defending you, picking up refugee boats, as say the Americans have done for decades with Haitians and Cubans, then there's no need to leave to destroy these people on the ruined Manus Island because the refugee flow has stopped and won't begin again. And that's the sort of um, fantasy that um, has gripped Canberra. That's Rudd's curse. Under Howard, people on the ruined Manus Island were slowly brought to Australia. And uh, Nauru and Manus Island were empty by the time Howard lost the election in 2007. And that position I've been arguing with um, friends Frank Brennan, Brennan and Tim Costello, John Manadieu, that we and with some support actually from Michael Gordon, the late wonderful journalist. But um, it hasn't caught on, and uh, so. We can't allow these people to be destroyed. And it seems to be one of the your argument then is the only solution to this is a bipartisan approach. And if a man who you would have thought would be sympathetic to these people's plight, Turnbull, 
can't be. What chance do we have of... Okay, I can put it in one word. Shorten. Shorten. You know, he's likely to be Prime Minister within you know, a year or more. And what, I hoping, what I'm hoping against hope is that Labor will change policy. I don't think they can before the election. But I hope that after the election, Labor will um, see that there is another way with these. It's only a small group of people on the road Manor's Island. So that's my hope. That's what I'm working towards. So your position on immigration would be a hybrid of the tough turnbacks, but also some compassion. Is that's that right? Yeah. And it's not easy. Um, it's much easier to take the position of my friends, like Julian Burnside um, and others. Much easier to have a morally pure policy, but I know it won't. Um, it's not conceivable and. It's another of the problems that can't wait, like climate change. Mm. These people on the ruined Manus Island are being gradually destroyed. Five more years is inconceivable. It's just terrible. You can't live without hope. No. And these people are being asked not only to live in terrible conditions, but to live without hope. And that's crashing to the human spirit. And our generation will never be forgiven for what we've allowed to happen. Just to the you know, 2,000 people. I mean, in in one of the essays, I can't remember which one, you do compare it almost to um, to the Nazi time where people, society turned its back to what was happening. They justified it in different ways. You talk about the banality of evil. Yeah, I mean, I say this is not like Nazism. No. But you can learn um, from the Nazi experience, even in much less, in extre- much less extreme situations. And Hannah Arendt, in her great book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, on the banality of evil, showed how some things that once would have appeared impossible to a mediocre person like Eichmann, you know, a vacuum cleaner salesman, are things that once would have appeared inconceivable come to appear normal. And that's her idea of the banality of evil. But certain things eyes are shut to the moral meaning. And that's what has happened to us, to Australians, to a large number of Australians, to a majority. Their eyes are shut. They don't think of the people they're allowed to be destroyed. So it's only in that tiny way that I use the concept, which is normally misunderstood, but that's what she meant, I believe. Do you, do you think there's an element of racism in this, our attitude to class these people as sort of dispensable and not worth worrying about? Or? Yeah, I mean, I used to argue that. I used to argue that if they were white Zimbabweans, we would treat them differently, and I think that's sort of true. But I, I, I mean, I think one of the great things in Australia has been our racism, except for Muslims, which is more complicated. But racism, which I saw when I was a child, and you know, I was born at the time of white Australia policy, that has fallen away. And I, you know, my heart lifts if I go down Victoria Street, or anywhere in Melbourne or Sydney or whatever, the way in which races we once kept out and are part of the fabric of society. So I no longer think racism is the most important explanation. I think it's um, more like the what's called the culture of control, which is the culture of the immigration department and governments since Federation, or before even. And that's, I think, a more... You know, the white Australia policy was absolutist. It said not one mm. Chinese, not one Indian will be admitted. And similarly, um, now we have this absolutist policy, not one boat person will be allowed to settle in Australia. Dreadful. But, so I think that's a better explanation than racism. You mentioned Islam and Muslims before, and so you've written extensively 
on Islam, and you said earlier that um, as part of your fascination with ideology, you're sort of well known for not being an ideologue. In fact, that's why I suppose earlier in your intellectual life you were regarded as right wing because you were opposed to to communist ideology or Marxist ideology. Um, so tell us a bit about your interest in Islam and. Um, yeah, I mean, um, you've described it well. I mean, I've, for, throughout my life, um, I've believed that one of the most lethal forms of politics is ideologically driven politics. And if you have a vision of what kind of world you want to create, uh, you can do almost anything, including mass murder. To justify it. Then. Yeah. I mean, the Nazis wanted to rid the world of Jews. And so, you know, even people who might be personally kind to their families or to their neighbours could watch these people being taken, you know, into gas chambers or being shot without flinching. And similarly with communism, um, the ideology of building a classless society, getting rid of capital, and... Uh, creating human equality was turned by Stalin and then later by Mao and Pol Pot into the, a warrant for genocide or warrant any other ethnic and political destruction of millions. So when I started reading about um, Islamic State and reading their thinkers, you know, I saw here's another of these ideologies that they believe the best, the only world worth having is a Muslim world and that you, can, you kill people on the basis of their rejection of the truth. They're not gangsters, they're not um, social, you know, psychopaths, they're ideologues, they're the ones that lead the movement. So I began reading and reading and reading till I came to see how they saw the world. And uh, it's, a, it's the most recent of the you know, people killing ideologies. Mm. And new, pretty new. It's, you know, I trace it back to um, the Egyptian ideologue, Zayed Qutub. Um, and strange enough, I don't think many people have written in the way I have, even though I'm not an expert on Islam at all. No. Uh, well, the essay in, in the book is quite, um, is very interesting. And although, like most ideologies, it, you see an end to it, that it won't, can't sustain itself. Yeah. But, um, you know, I wrote it before the Islamic State had been militarily yeah. destroyed in Syria and Iraq. Still going on elsewhere. But the ideas will linger, um, maybe for another 50 years, and will draw young people in. Mm. And will do great harm. I mean, the biggest harm they're doing is to um, peaceable Muslim citizens, in both in Muslim countries and in Western countries, have poisoned. You know, the biggest thing Islamic State has done, and Al Qaeda before it, or also as well now, is to poison relations between Muslim and non-Muslim. Mm. And we see it now working out in Australia, and it's a terrible tragedy, I think for our kind of societies, you know, because there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world. Yes. So it's a very serious matter of relations between Muslims and non-Muslims are, you know, destroyed or worsened. Mm. Well, if you look at the figures, the, the people that suffer most from these ideologues are, are Muslims themselves. Overwhelmingly. I mean... Yeah, Islamic State I mean, could, believes they can kill Shias and you know, a bomb goes off in Baghdad and three or four hundred are killed. Mm. We hardly notice. Mm. But if you know, the same thing, you know, a smaller event happens in Paris or in the um, United States, you know, it's 9-11, the big example. You know, we, it changes Western societies um, in very profound ways. But Muslims suffer from this ideology yeah, more extensively than we do. And do you think that um, governments have used 
this threat as a way of um, exerting more control over citizens, you know, with laws that they're passing and... I don't, I don't actually. Right. I'm, I'm a civil libertarian. It's worried that first these laws will apply to Muslims and then they'll apply to non-Muslims. You know, the extensive surveillance and, you know, this, the loosening of um, protections about um, how long you can hold people before being charged and so on. My view is that it, it doesn't, won't affect us. Non-Muslims. Um, I mean, it could you know, take me a long time to show why, but uh, I think it's mainly its main effect is against um, its poisoning relations between Muslims and non-Muslims in Australia. Saying, so I don't feel under threat because of the laws. Right. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. But I suppose if you're a Muslim Australian, you you may yes. feel. Yeah. I mean, I think it's. I think much more real is that you know when they walk down the street wearing a burqa mm. or when they're you know, praying um, there's now a growing hostility towards them so their place in the society is made more vulnerable yes. precarious I think you know, that would be a more real fear than the loss of civil liberties moving on from vulnerable Muslims to another sector of our society that you write about is the indigenous population and how we've never actually taken them to our hearts and tried to redress the wrongs that have been done to them. Yeah, I mean, things are much better than they once were. And um, I think by and large, most decent people accept that um, tragedy, Western Australia is built on a tragedy, which is dispossession. And uh, 50 or 60 years ago, I don't think that was understood. It was brushed away, mm. denied, judged, concept. I don't think that's in general true anymore. There is a battle, another culture war battle over it all. Well, there's one famous one you had with Andrew Bolt. <laughs> Yeah. about the stolen generation. Yeah, but that's interesting because um, he, he writes about it still and always mentions me. But he's almost the only ideologue who's still you know, rabbiting on about that. Hans Rudd made the apology to the stolen generations and the people, the survivors, were so deeply moved and so many decent Australians. Yeah, which is the vast majority, were moved by it. But I think, uh, I think the denial is sort of weakening. But see, there's a problem. Every society wants to think well of its origins. It doesn't like moral complexity concerning its origins. And we, like the American and Canadians, uh, there is an ambiguity. Mm. And that's why this battle over Australia Day matters so much, because it, um, it's difficult for a society to have the sophistication to cherish what it's achieved while holding in mind at whose expense. Mm. But that's growing, I think. Do you think it should be changed, the date? Yes. I mean, it's just, it's now, every year, we're going to have the same debate, mm. and it's, it's growing. Mm. Yeah, it's growing. It wasn't there as much ten years ago, and um, it's as ridiculous to say that Indigenous Australians can celebrate the destruction of their civilization or society. Ridiculous. How can they celebrate that? So move it. I liked Noel Pearson's idea of mm. having the two days. One, you know, on the 25th to celebrate um, what once was, and the 26th to join in the idea of we have created something in most part very good. So Australia Weekend. Yeah, which is both the memory of mm. its wonderful civilization, really, I think, Aboriginal society, which I've read quite a bit about, was and is wonderful civilization. 
with my friend and publisher Chris Fike, we put together Stanner, Bill Stanner's essays, which I right now you still have in your shop. And they, you know, he, he really felt the meaning of indigenous society. He lived amongst people and he, he loved what he saw. The closeness of people, the physical prowess, gentleness towards children, which was very strong. The joy, you know, the singing and dancing, the complexity of the um, religious or spiritual way of looking at the world. We should, you know, people should read Stena so they understand that. We should. Um, you also write that we had an opportunity for a treaty, but that was lost, and it seems to still be quite elusive. And yes. Do you think it's important to have one? Yeah, but I mean, I've never really um, known in any great detail about treaties. And that's not been one of the things that most, you know, that I've been most concerned with. I'm more concerned with um, reconciliation. Now, yeah, indigenous um, cultural uh, constitutional recognition. Um, and I think that's the item on the agenda, although treaties will be part of that. Right. So you think constitutional re recognition is more is the most important? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, having a um, advisory Aboriginal elected body that will be listened to is a great idea. And uh, it's eventually that's evolved from all the very complicated Indigenous politics. And I strongly support it. And that's another thing that Malcolm Turnbull's um, scotched, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was so distressed um, when he showed he didn't, he wasn't going to go ahead with a media um, leak. Such contempt when, you know, a few weeks earlier he'd been pretending mm. to care about these things. There's again another thing that... Um, my spirit is good, but these things affect me badly. And so we probably should come to the, the final essay, which um, earlier on you did say was one that was sort of close to heart. It's about universities. And you spent um, all your professional life, really, in universities. They've changed quite dramatically since you started. Um, tell us a little bit about your views on the changing role of universities and where they should be going I noticed Glyn Davis has written a book on his views about the university, which was reviewed this weekend in The Australian. Yeah, well, there's um, some of the Australians I most admire, like my friend Raymond Gator, the philosopher, or John Kitzer, the um, novelist who now lives in South Australia, or Pierre Rickmans, who has died, but he's a wonderful writer. They write as if the old university could be restored. And um, I don't believe that's true. They are now mass institutions and they train you know, the workforce for, you know, for a technological society. And the old university in that way I don't think can be restored. The old university learning for learning's sake. Learning for learning's sake, yeah. professors in charge. Tenure. Tenure. For those like me, you know, who's lucky enough to get it. Um, and only disciplines which pass muster in the scholarly or scientific world should be taught. Except for professions which are always taught, but we tend to ignore that. I just, I'm not, I'm not nostalgic for that. I feel I was lucky to be at the, at the very end of that tradition was still alive in the 60s when I was at um, Melbourne, you were. Yes. Yeah, we were speaking, you know, a stone's throw from a wonderful university. Yes, it was a wonderful, I remember it was a wonderful time in my life. Yeah, and I, I think that practically speaking, that kind of experience, it cannot exactly be replicated or restored. But my view is, it can be in pockets of the university. Yeah. An inspired scientist, can inspire young people 
even though most people will be studying in information technology or you know, health science or something, but there will still be people studying science, mathematics, philosophy, history, literature, sociology. And uh, so my hope is that those of us who have it, who will find the students in these places and give them that experience within larger mass organizations doing other things by and large. So it's a bit complicated as most of my <laughs> ideas are. But I, you know, taught for um, more than 40 years uh, at La Trobe. And year after year, I was able, I think, to find students who wanted to. I was teaching the history of 20th century politics. They wanted to know and to learn. Often they were amazed how much they wanted to understand. So, you know, it can be done. And many people that I taught alongside were doing the same thing. I think that old university experience which we had is not really um, able to be restored in general. And Glenn Davis, you know, is a civilized leader of a mass institution. But I think he understands that there is also the possibility of locating that small number of students who love learning. And nurturing them, nurturing as, well, them. as well as being a mass... Yeah. A factory, in a, in a way. Yeah. And you argue that because it's Australia, because our government, our universities are paid for by the governments, that they can and do it, exert an influence on how they evolve. And yes. Well, strangely, <laughs> you know, when we were students, Mark, government was a much larger proportion of funds than now, and yet they can, their influence was much less. You know, universities mm. were autonomous. Professors ran the yeah. show. We used to call it, ironically, the shop. Yes. Because any sign of it becoming integrated into the economy was you know, rejected or laughed at. Mm. And then at that stage, the universities were paid for by government. Smaller number of universities, far smaller. Now, they, they get their funds from overseas students and all sorts of ways. But still, they have to be responsive to government, and they are. And that's increased year by year, inexorably. And to the economy. And to the economy. Um, so they, you know, they have to find niches in the economy where they can, which they can serve. So, on the whole, you, you're not. There's a certain amount of nostalgia for what it was, but it's not a. You don't think it's a bad, necessarily a bad thing that they've I changed, or. Well, it's bad in the sense that um, they, were, they, were, they were more inspiring places once. Mm. But I am a realist, I hope. <laughs> and yeah, universities grew because they were serving the needs of a new economy. And I, I don't think that could have been avoided unless you created smaller universities and then larger tertiary institutions. But I'm afraid that um, that rabbit has run long time yes. ago. And the only private university we have is um, wasn't set up to be a an Ivy League. You mean Bond? Yes. Yeah. It hasn't had any great effect on anything. And no. wasn't set up with that idea. Americans are much better at it than we are. We have liberal arts colleges as well as Ivy League. Much more like the old universities. And I mean, I often talk to f friends who are academics and um, who are in the system, and they're quite often disparaging about the places they work work for. Yeah. Um, they always have been. <laughs> right, it's nothing. I mean, I'm, I used to feel that I was very privileged to have the job I had. And I used to not really sympathize with a lot of the um, complaints. But the complaints are now much more genuine. There's too, far too much bureaucracy and uh, form filling mm. and working towards a point system for your success. Certainly. But uh, academics have always complained and always will. 
so, you know, now, I mean, I was again so lucky. I didn't have to think about that. And I wrote freely, mainly in places that academics now would get no points for. You know, so... So the monthly or...? The monthly. Or I used to write for Quadrant, edited Quadrant yes. for many years. Um, but even if you write for New York Review of Books, it's, from an academic point of view, worthless. Whereas if you write an article um, for an obscure journal, which no one reads, you get a point. And yeah, uh, that's, you know, I think it's a bad thing. But in a way, it's because it's so hard to, you know, to evaluate academics if you don't have these very um, neutral measures. But, you know, they're much more anxious than we used to be. On the other hand, Mark, poor people, when we were students, who had, were tenured for life, were incredibly lazy, drank rather than wrote. They could have written great things, but they didn't need to, and they didn't. I couldn't mention, but I won't. No. <laughs> but they all did now. But academics, you know, very talented. They wrote one article in their entire life. That's not a bad thing. They've been shaken up a bit. No. It was too leisurely. Well, perhaps, perhaps needs to be finessed a bit. Yes. Uh, Robert, it's, it's been great um, talking to you, and um, thank you so much for the uh, contributions you've made. Um, so now you're sort of back in the saddle a bit? And, yeah. And you said um, you're going to do, go out in public more? You're going yeah. to do some events? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to do quite a few public events. To do with the book? and To do with the book, or to indeed with other things in, in the future, because I believe having an unpleasant voice <laughs> ought not to be the end of your public life. And um, so, you know, I'm going to try and change perceptions a bit. Um, my own, I mean, I was once as prejudiced as I think people are now. But you'd sort of vaguely want to not listen to a voice which was... Um, unpleasant or whatever but I mean I think you even by now you will be feeling fairly at ease with me even though the you know the voice is not what it once was no uh, you, it's still the same voice it's just the timbre is different and after this hour or so this feels quite natural to <laughs> that's what I'm saying that mm. you need it's to just... sort of overcome that first mm. um, sort of, I think it's a, almost a, you know like a visceral irritation mm. I don't want to listen to this Neville Rand used to have a bad voice he did didn't he mm. and people you know they got used to it so I'm hoping that they can get used to me and but also that you know we don't think of you know unpleasant voice uh, takes away from the content which can be interesting or whatever yeah and you're working on a, a new a new book I hear well um, Right. But I'm finding it quite difficult to to want to do it. Uh. So I'm thinking about some of my teachers at university, and I might write about them first as a way of bringing uh. myself into that world. I'm going to do a very short book on um, one of my mentors, a very strange man. You probably know, mm. Dr. Nofelmacher. Oh, yes, I remember. He was the Bet Noir when I was... He was the Bet Noir. And, uh, university? He had, he had a very big influence on me. Did he? Yeah. Um, Finally, one of the things I, I like to ask people I talk to is, um, after our listeners have read your book, what's a book that 
Are you reading something at the moment that you're finding particularly interesting? I mean, to be honest, I'm reading things for my um, next bit of work. Ah. I mean, what, I, what I'm going to read next is Alex Miller's last novel. Right. And Judith Brett, my colleague, yes. who work on Deacon. So they're sitting on my desk waiting to be read. But they're both, both wonderful books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, I, you know, so that'll be my next right. move. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been... Fantastic talking to you, and I uh, wish you all the best for your new book and um, your renewed public life. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it.